This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open God's Word for our study of James this morning, let's make sure, or this evening, it's been a very long, long week, long day, let's uh, bow our heads together, make sure we're in fellowship, utilize 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, make sure we're in fellowship with the Lord, filled with the Spirit, and ready to study. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the wonderful privilege we have to come into your presence, and that is because of all that Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He he paid the penalty for every single sin in human history, and on that basis, our sins have been taken care of, and so we have immediate access to you because of the work of our great high priest. And as royal priests, we have this wonderful privilege given to us to come to pray to you any time we need to, and what a privilege that is. Now, Father, we pray as we study your word that you would help us to understand these important doctrines that we are studying, how they relate to the thinking in our soul, and how that relates to how we handle problems. Help us to understand these things and see how they apply to our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I just got home about 5 o'clock this afternoon from three days in, as they say down Texas, Fort Worth, Texas. That's right down the road from Dallas. It was 102 degrees every day while I was there, but it was only about 35% humidity, so that wasn't too bad. But the only time I got hot and uncomfortable was when... uh, when I had to go out and get in my car after it had been sitting in 102 degree weather all day. The rest of the time you're inside in 70 degree buildings. But it was a good, the reason I went was to attend the Conservative Theological Society meeting, which is a new society that started about a year ago, and it's done under the auspices of Tyndale Theological Seminary. And there have been several men here, who have taken courses through Tyndale, and so it was good for me to go down there and to meet uh, some of the people involved there, meet Mal Couch, who is the founder and president of Tyndale Seminary, and get to know them. Well, And I thought I'd tell you a little bit about what goes on at these kinds of meetings. It's uh, Sometimes I go away a little frustrated because I realize there's a lot of pastors and theologians out there that They're kind of pointed in the right direction, but it's like the lights haven't really gone on yet. But then there's always a few there that you're really excited about because they're really pointed in the right direction and they're uh, understanding some of the issues. There are generally, in terms of uh, academics and scholarship, these societies where theologians get together about once a year and they present papers. Different men will have researched specific areas in detail, and they will present a paper, give copies to everybody, and then takes about an hour for them to present their material, and then there'll be question and answer afterwards. Now, the main society that most, uh, most of the professors at seminaries and a lot of pastors are members of, I've been a member of for about, off and on for about 15 years, is the Evangelical Theological Society. But it's very broad in its doctrinal statement, and it's, I think there are influences in the world, some of which we're going to talk about later if we get there this, this evening, that are putting pressure on, uh, as, on everybody in the culture, and especially in scholarship. And so you see more of this worldly thinking, what's called uh, postmodernism. I'm not saying they're postmodern, but they're definitely, as it's oozing into the fabric of, of uh, the seminaries from the world around, it's having its impact and People are drifting, and seminaries are drifting and moving in the wrong direction. 
so one of the things that has happened in the last few years is you've had uh, people try to recover from this. So you had the uh, Tyndale Theological Seminary start and Schaefer Theological Seminary start out in Southern California as an attempt to provide a school going back to the older, strong fundamentals of teaching and seminary training that was uh, exemplified by Dallas Seminary, which has for so long been the beacon of orthodoxy, dispensational instruction, but there are cracks, serious cracks, appearing in the wall. And that was sad to hear some of the things that were said at this conference. But the Conservative Theological Society has a dispensational, premillennial, pre-tribulational doctrinal statement. So I have hopes that, that over the years that this will have an impact. And they've been producing a journal for about two years that has some interesting articles in it. And the subject of the conference was on hermeneutics. And we had an introductory session Monday afternoon after I had a wonderful lunch of Mexican food. Now, those of you who aren't from Texas, you don't understand what Mexican food is to a Texan. It is, it is mother's milk to us. And you just can't get it up here. So that was the first thing I did when I hit town was went to my favorite Mexican restaurant and ordered the largest platter they had and ate two baskets of chips and just thoroughly enjoyed myself in preparation for feeding on the Word. But we got together after that sumptuous feast. We went through basic introductory concepts on hermeneutics Monday afternoon. Monday evening we heard a paper from a pastor in Oregon who had just completed his doctoral dissertation on covenant theology, uh, hermeneutics and covenant theology. And so that was very helpful. And then we had another paper that was given on uh, liberal hermeneutics and liberal theology. Another paper was given on hermeneutics in uh, our postmodern hermeneutics, which was fascinating. Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit later on. So if you don't know what it is, hold on to your seats. You'll find out. You're living it. You're thinking it. You just don't know it. Uh, another thing, Tommy Ice was there, and we tried to keep our mouths shut and not dominate the conversation too much. Tommy was. Tommy said some great things about the congregation here. I was one of the men that was there who gave a talk on dispensationalism and the new progressive dispensationalism that has uh, come out of Dallas Seminary. It was really sad to hear some of the things that have come out of Dallas lately. There's a new book that's been published. One of the things that's been a, a trend for the last 15 years in publishing is to, and it's, it's helpful, it's a, this is a good trend, in that it produces books like Four Views of Salvation or Four Views of the Millennium or Three Views of the uh, Tribulation of the Rapture, where you have somebody who believes in each of the different positions defend their position, and then there's two or three responses by the other positions, and it helps people, helps theological, helps seminary students and people think through the issues and see the contrast between the different positions. A new book came out a year ago that I need to read now. didn't know it was out. It's called Four Views on the Spiritual Gifts, and it represents four different positions on whether or not the sign gifts like tongues and healing have continued. The one, only one of the three positions is a cessationist position. Now, that's the term that's thrown around now. It means to cease. That the sign gifts have completely ceased and ceased at the end of the first century. And the guy who wrote the cessationist article was from Westminster Theological Seminary, Covenant Seminary, Covenant Theologian down here in Philadelphia. The other three articles from the view that said open but unsure by Bob Sosi, who's at Talbot Seminary, he got his master's and PhD from Dallas Seminary, to Sam Storms, who was brilliant, got the preaching award the year before I started seminary, and was the assistant pastor under S. Lewis Johnson at Believer's Chapel in Dallas, Texas and was absolutely brilliant, wrote the position on the third wave, which is the signs and wonders position. And then the third guy, who I was not familiar with, was a full-blown Pentecostal. All three of the continued positions 
were argued by men who had their masters and doctorates from Dallas Theological Seminary. And that is a tragedy. And it just made us sick to see things like this going on with men who've got that kind of training and who ought to know better. And it is just, it's just devastating. And what's going on in terms of dispensationalism and the drift at Dallas away from traditional dispensationalism. And they're not just changing because they're modifying and, okay, there's this position that just needs to be tweaked a little bit and that position. The, the image that's used is the idea that, that uh, let's say you go into, some, into your home and you decide, well, I just don't like the way the furniture's arranged. I'm going to move the television over here, move the sofa over here, move the chair and table over here. You still have the same basic furniture and you still have the same basic room. You've just modified the furniture to be a little more efficient. What they're doing is they're tearing out the walls. They're taking the furniture completely out and bringing new furniture in. It's not just a slight modification. They're changing the whole system. And we spent a lot of time talking about what the issues were in that because they're pretty technical. and um, it's, just, it's just sad to see a lot of stuff. We tried to avoid doing a lot of Dallas bashing, but it was a little difficult considering that some of this bad stuff was coming out of Dallas Seminary. So it's uh, Dallas, we wouldn't want to say Dallas is liberal or Dallas is postmodern, but the influences are definitely there. And I was really saddened to hear that in, in November. And I'm going to have to, I just don't normally write letters, but I'm going to have to on this, that the speaker at the 75th Founders Anniversary Banquet for Dallas Seminary, Dallas Seminary, founded by Lewis Berry Chafer. The hallmark of his ministry was understanding grace, that salvation was by grace through faith alone. He wrote an excellent book called Grace. That was the hallmark of his ministry. And the man that is going to be the keynote speaker at the banquet this year is William Bennett. William Bennett is an active Roman Catholic. I don't know if he's saved or not, but according to his theology, he's not. He is a moralist. He stands for everything antithetical to what Lewis Berry Chaper stood for. And yet they have asked him to come and be the speaker. These are the kinds of influences that are going on in our world today. What we need to ask is causing this. What is producing this kind of drift? It's not just at Dallas. It's happening, it's happening at other seminaries, it's happening at Bible colleges, it's happening in, in some of the largest, most fundamental, or historically, some of the most fundamental Bible-teaching churches in this country have shifted. They're now singing, and you see it in their worship. We've talked about that some with, with music and the contemporary praise and worship music. And one of the men there made the comment that recently he had gone on a road trip from Florida up to the Chicago area. And along the way, he stopped at two or three different churches of different denominations. And he said they're all singing the same basic songs. They're all into praise and worship music. They're all doing the same thing on Sunday morning. They're all following the same trends. It didn't matter if it was a Methodist church or a Baptist church or a Pentecostal church. Why is it? that these same trends are affecting different groups. And they're theologically, or at least historically, the Lutheran doctrines, Methodist doctrines, Presbyterian doctrines are far apart. Their, their liturgies, what they do on a Sunday morning, ought to reflect the differences in what they believe. And yet what we find is this ecumenicalism that is coming together so that, that you find the same, the same songs, the same approach to worship on on. And from one church to another, so very little difference is discernible. What is it that's causing this kind of change? What are the things that are happening across our, our culture as a whole? And as we come to our passage here in James, I saw this coming last week when we were we were in this passage. So turn, open your, go ahead and open your Bibles to James three, and I, I'm, I'm going to have to back up to where we ended last week and finish our talk about bitterness. But we're going to come back and see this because in James 3, 13 to 18, 
James is contrasting human viewpoint thinking with divine viewpoint thinking. And as believers who are concerned about growing in grace and understanding Scripture and applying it in our lives, we have to remember that the command in Romans 12.2 is that we are to be renewing our mind. More precise translation would be to renew our thinking, renovate, reshape our thinking. And that means we have to do some hard work. It's not easy to think. Well, it's not easy to think. And it's really hard to think about your thinking. That gets even more difficult. But what's happening is that people have adopted, because of cultural shifts in the last few years, people are thinking differently about reality, how they're organizing, how they're interpreting reality, how they're interpreting events, is different from the way that they interpreted events 25 or 30 years ago and how they did that. And that's different from a century ago. And we have to identify what are these cultural. You know, the Bible doesn't use the word cultural. It uses the word world. That's what culture is. What are these cultural influences that we're all subject to that are causing these kinds of drifts? Because the sad thing, the really tragic thing, is that what's happening is people are getting away from the concepts of the sufficiency of Scripture. And we talked at this conference about how how people, on the one hand, you have theologians and pastors who, who affirm a doctrine of inerrancy, that every word of God is breathed out, every word of the Scripture is breathed out by God, and that God so superintended or overrode or controlled the writers of Scripture that without negating their own personality, their own style, their own education, their own background, their own culture, God so governed their writing that what they wrote was what he wanted them to write and was free from all error. Now, a lot of people will affirm that the Bible is God's word, it's infallible, it's inerrant, it's authoritative. But then they compartmentalize that. And if every word here is the authoritative and errant word of God, then it must be treated a certain way. The words must be treated a certain way. The way we treat them here, where each word is analyzed, exegeted, where you look at the grammar of the original language, you look at, you look at the nouns, what case, number, gender, what is the basic meaning, you look at the verbs, you parse the verbs, what's the, the uh, tense, mood, voice, number, you look at that. What impact does that have on our understanding of what the writer is saying? And as you get away from that, and you get influenced by these trends today, you tend to look at more the ideas rather than the words. So on the one hand, you affirm an inerrancy statement, but on the other hand, your practice does not conform with inerrancy. You, one corollary of inerrancy, and I've beat this horse to death since I was in seminary. Tommy and I used to get in lengthy arguments with people about this when we were in seminary fighting psychology, that the Bible claims that it has the answer to every single problem that you face. No matter what happens in my life, I have the confidence of knowing that it's not a surprise to God that billions of years ago, in eternity past, God knew every single problem, no matter how horrendous it might be, no matter how horrible you can imagine, no matter what horrible thing has gone on in your life, in your childhood, in your adulthood, whatever, no matter how horrible it may be, God knew about that in eternity past, and God gave us the principles to handle that in His Word. Now that's powerful. That gives people hope and confidence on how to live, that we can face situations, and we don't need to learn psychological mumbo-jumbo and the theories and all this other stuff. We just need to know what God says. And yet, what psychology says is, well, the Bible is true and psychology is true and all truth is God's truth. And what they're doing is they're very subtly denying the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of Christ. But then they'll turn right around and affirm the doctrine of inerrancy. Not understanding you really can't have one without the other. And we live in an era when we're all, we've all been taught by our culture to compartmentalize. So that whatever we believe about one thing, we put it in a compartment over here. 
and then we learn something about something else, and we put it in a compartment over here, and the two don't ever seem to relate to each other. So what we learn on Sunday morning doesn't really affect what we do on Tuesday afternoon because we've managed to isolate different arenas of thought. So the issue in the spiritual life is summarized in Romans 12:2 that we are to be renovating our thinking. Just one more thing that, that I thought was interesting, sad but interesting, is I had not been on campus for any length of time. I, I ran into the library on two different occasions in the last ten years, but I had not spent any length of time walking around the campus of Dallas Seminary since about 1991. And I got there early. I went out. I left here after church Sunday morning and flew out Sunday afternoon so I could spend most of the day doing some research in the library on Monday before the other conference started. And so I was in the library for about four or five hours and I went to the bookstore and I walked around campus and I heard students talking. And um, it was palpable, the difference. You could smell it. It didn't smell like Dallas Seminary anymore. It didn't feel like Dallas Seminary anymore. It didn't look like Dallas Seminary anymore. I mean, you, just the, the, the books that were in the bookstore. When I was a student and showed up at Dallas in 1976 and you walked into the bookstore, there was about two shelves back in the corner that had to do with what we would call devotional, practical Christianity. The rest of the material in there was hardcore commentaries, Greek and Hebrew tools, theologies, good material that, any, that you needed. I walked into the main room of the bookstore now, and there must have been 50 or 60 different styles of T-shirts and jackets and coffee mugs, and trinkets, and pens, and everything with the Dallas Seminary logo on it. And then on one wall they had all the, the, the top ten Christian music, contemporary Christian music CDs for sale. And there's another room that has all the other stuff, in it, all the books, and, and I, you could just tell from what was being sold in the bookstore what was influencing the student body at the seminary. Now, there's always stuff that you don't agree with in the bookstore because as a seminary student, you have to read what the opposition says so you know what they say so you develop critical skills. But you can sense when it's gone beyond that, when there's a lot of popular literature and a lot of devotional stuff there, and they're selling all the bestsellers in Christianity that are just a lot of fluff and have no content whatsoever. And you didn't used to have that. I mean, it was powerful. And about four different guys, I never said anything about that, and the first guy that stood up and gave a paper said, you know, I went over to Dallas Seminary today and walked around and I couldn't believe how it just felt different. You could tell it wasn't the same school. And three or four other guys said the same thing. Some of them hadn't been there in three or four years. Most of them you know, had been three to ten years since they had been on campus. Yet it was palpable, the difference. You see, when you don't toe the line on what the Bible says and make that the ultimate authority in your life, then what's going to happen, and it doesn't happen overnight. I think that Dallas, this started Dallas back in 1973 when they got accredited because you have to go to the world's accrediting systems and let them dictate certain parameters for what requirements they have for accreditation. And, then you, and it gradually eroded, and, and, and we saw it back in the 70s. In fact, I remember we were talking about last year. Some of you may remember, weren't there, but you may remember when, when uh, George Meisinger was here and they had the conference over at North Stonington back at Labor Day last year. And one afternoon, George and uh, uh, Charlie Clough and I and a couple other men were sitting down there and Jay, and they were telling stories about when Charlie and George were in seminary. And when they were seniors, they had... Uh, Bob theme come up to give the senior message. And that title of that message we all refer to as the dog returning to its vomit message. And in Pastor Theme's gentle, tactful manner, he told the, student, I mean, the faculty and the students there that they were drifting off course from Lewis Berry Chafer's original vision of teaching Greek and Hebrew, not having a Christian ed department, and of sticking with sound theology. And he predicted, he's not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but his predictions were right. 
He predicted where Dallas would go if they didn't change. And man, he made the faculty mad. They were livid that he had the nerve to come to Dallas Seminary and say the things he had to say. But he was exactly right, and it's drifted. And the same thing happens in your life. You're not going to fall away from Christianity like that. It's going to be a gradual erosion, because this is what you see it in institutions, and you see it in our lives. We get away from the Word. It's not quite as important. I find something better to do this week, or I just let my job pressure me a little more this week, or, or, or I'm just too tired this week, and we gradually get away from making learning doctrine and bringing every thought captive for Christ, the priority in our life, and we get away from it. And it, it, it's not a landslide. Whenever you see somebody suddenly fall apart in their life and start rejecting doctrine, it didn't happen then. It started four, five, six, seven, eight years before that, maybe. It's a slow, gradual, destructive, destructive process. And it always starts in the mind. That's why James addresses the mentality and the mental attitude sins here in James uh, 3, 13 to 18. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? And we saw here this is not the concept that the Greeks had of academic wisdom and academic knowledge, but is very practical, applicational knowledge related to doctrines. Talking about epinosis doctrine. Who among you is wise and understanding? Who among you has learned the Word of God and learned doctrine and assimilated that into the mentality of your soul so that you can handle the problems of life with skill and expertise? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. And we saw that what he was talking about there is the fact that Knowledge of doctrine always is to culminate in application, in the way we live our lifestyle. It transforms our character on the inside first, and then it will work its way out in the day-to-day affairs of our life. As we change the way we think, then it will change the way we handle adversity. We develop new critical thinking skills so that when we go through problems or difficulties, we can evaluate that in light of what the Word of God says, and we can interpret the events in terms of the Word of God and not in terms of our own limited experience, and then we can apply the promises of Scripture whether it's and the problem-solving devices, whether it's faith rest drill or grace orientation or personal love for God the Father, but we can then begin to apply the stress busters to those pressures. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. And we saw that gentleness was indeed a fruit of the Spirit, and its gentleness is not a good translation. It should be translated more in the sense of humility, because it has to do with, the, with grace orientation that underlies the application of doctrine, realizing it's not up to us. Then there's a contrast. But, if... First class condition, if, and we're going to assume you have this for the sake of argument, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in the inner control center of the thinking of your soul. This is how I diagram it. Two words, there's other words that are used, but for the sake of simplification and to try to get the concept across, we restrict our understanding of the mentality of the soul to nous and cardia. Cardia has to do with something that is at the inner core of something. This is the control center. Sometimes the word cardia is used in passages that indicate volition, that indicate uh, maybe emotion, but primarily it has to do with thought and thinking. And the reason is, if we look up here, we see how I've diagrammed the soul with, with circles that interface. And for academic purposes, we break the soul down into its components, but in reality, they all intermesh. But the control center is the mentality, the inner part of the mentality, which is the heart. It is the, out of the heart that comes the issues of life. So it determines what you're putting into your heart. And if as a result of volition, you let the sin nature control and you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, which is the result of arrogance dominating the control center of the thinking of your soul, James warns, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth, recognizing that the core issue 
and these mental attitude and emotional sins of bitterness and selfishness, selfish ambition, the underlying issue is arrogance. And then in verse 15 he says, This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Three adjectives to describe it. So what we are going to see here is that the Bible represents two ways of looking at things, what we call divine viewpoint and human viewpoint. The Bible uses terms like foolishness and wisdom, walking in darkness, walking in the light. These are all the contrasts between the two positions. You're either on this side, over here, or on this side, over here. This is the path to spiritual life, walking in divine viewpoint. Now, last time we started with the doctrine of bitterness, and we went through several points. The first point was a definition. We want to understand what the Bible says about bitterness, because bitterness is used two different ways. One, it is used to describe a mental attitude or emotional sin of bitterness which is tantamount to resentment. It is from the Greek noun pikria, which refers to results from grief, disappointment, or disillusionment with circumstances, people, or events. Now, when you become disillusioned with circumstances, what do you say about your life? Life has become bitter. So you have an internal bitterness in the soul that is reflected in the overt experience of life that has now become miserable and painful. It's this self-induced misery, and that is referred to as bitterness. And the reason I'm making this, this distinction here between the inner mental attitude sin of bitterness and the overt experience of life that becomes miserable and is described as bitterness is we're going to see how these two are brought together in one Old Testament episode as we go through this. So we saw, first of all, definition of of bitterness. It's a noun, pakria. refers to the results from grief, disappointment, disillusionment with circumstances, people, or events. It turns to self-absorption over disappointment. If you have bitter circumstances, you react with bitterness in the soul. It then moves towards resentment and jealousy that others have better circumstances, more things, more money, better health, whatever it might be. The result of that is that it produces anger and animosity, hostility towards others, and it results in reaction towards towards life, reaction towards God, and withdrawal into further self-absorption and self-justification. Point number two was that bitterness is a mental attitude sin produced from the sin nature and has its source in arrogance and self-absorption. And then point number three... Bitterness is often related to self-justification and then self-deception. So we have the three arrogant skills. It starts off with self-absorption. Then it, relate, then it moves towards self-justification and moves into self-deception. So the more you go into self-deception, the more you become distorted from reality. People just don't know how wonderful you are. God is just mistreating you. And you begin to blame everything else and you... The bitterness dominates the soul, and the result is going to be that you just make yourself more and more miserable under the category of self-induced misery, and then the more misery you have, the more self-absorbed you become, the more bitterness takes over in your soul, and the more misery you have, and you just get locked into a terrible cycle of self-destruction. A classic example of this in the Old Testament is Esau. And we turn for support to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's turn over there. I'm not going to review the first part of Hebrews 12 as I did last time. We reviewed that showing that the basic themes in Hebrews 12 fit the themes of James. The writer of Hebrews is exhorting the believers to put their focus on Jesus Christ, occupation with Christ so that they can endure whatever suffering they go through because they understand the dynamics of what Jesus Christ went through on the cross. 
that when He was on the cross, He bore in His body on the cross for three hours the punishment for all of our sins. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. The pain that He endured during those three hours is beyond anything you or I can ever fathom. He was separated judicially, not metaphysically or ontologically, that means in His being or in His person, but just judicially, He's separated from God the Father. Why? Because as the sins of the world are poured out on Him, God the Father, who is perfect righteousness, cannot have fellowship with Him. So there is a judicial separation. But because these are not His sins, there is not a rupture in the Trinity. So God the Father pours out judicially the sins of the world on Jesus Christ, and He goes through incredible agony, and God the Father covers the earth at that point in darkness so people cannot look on the agony. And what the writer of Hebrews says, he endured all of that for the joy set before him, and then says, you have not resisted to that point in your striving against sin, therefore don't grow weary and lose heart. That's Hebrews 12, 3 and 4. And then from 12, 4 and 11, he reminds us that God, because he loves us, because he is our Father, is going to discipline us when we're out of fellowship, when we get into sin and carnality. And that is all designed to bring us back so that it will produce the fruit of righteousness. So the whole theme of Hebrews 12 is around how to handle testing and adversity, encouraging them to persevere, encouraging them to, to recover using confession. This is the metaphor that's used in Hebrews 12, 12 and 13. We read that, it says, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Now you can look at that and say, well, what does that mean? And we either interpret it literally, he either intends it literally, or he intends it figuratively. Now the Bible uses figurative language many, many times. The Psalms are full of it. That does not mean it's not Literal interpretation. Literal interpretation recognizes that the writers of Scripture used figures of speech and idioms in order to communicate truth. And so, if you take it literally, it doesn't mean much, so it must have a figurative sense. And what he is saying is that, that your hands, that is what you, what you do, knees are part of your legs, that's where you go. In other words, your movement, your production, the spiritual life is hindered. What hinders spiritual life production is sin. And so you have to straighten things out. And the only way to do that, of course, is through 1 John 1, 9. If we confess or name, and that is if we confess or admit, acknowledge our sins to God the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at the point of confession, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit and we are restored to fellowship so that we can then move forward and advance. Being filled with the Spirit is not the end result. That's just the beginning. That's the mechanic for being able to continue by walking by means of the Spirit. Then in verse 14, Pursue peace with all men, the sanctification, that is the spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, without which no one will see the Lord. And what he's talking about here in comparison with all the other warning passages in Hebrews, this is something that gets a lot of people confused when they come to the warning passages in Hebrews. The first thing is you can say, well, the warning passages mean that you can lose salvation. That's wrong. That's false. That's the Arminian option. That means you can lose salvation. The other is the hyper-Calvinist and the lordship response, and that is that you, well, if you fall away, you weren't ever truly saved. And we've gone through some studies of that and show that it's basically just a distortion of the previous position. Neither one really understands grace. And the third position is that there are going to be rewards for believers who advance to spiritual maturity. And these will be distributed at the uh, Bema seat of Jesus Christ during the, at the judgment seat of Christ during, while the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, is going on in this earth. All believers will, be, will have been raptured to heaven. 
we are taken bodily. Those who are alive and remain are immediately transformed. We meet Jesus Christ in the air. Uh, first, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him in the air. That's different from the second coming, which takes place after the seven-year tribulation. There's a second coming where Jesus Christ comes to the earth, to the Mount of Olives, and that is when the tribulation ends and the beast and false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is bound for a thousand years, and then you have the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Incidentally, that's a literal number there. There's another book out written by several Dallas Seminary professors, or two in particular. And one of them suggests that maybe the figure 1,000 ought not be taken literally. See, the cracks are appearing in the dam. This is a 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Now, up here you have the Greek word is bema, which was the judgment seat of the local magistrate. And so that is the picture of Jesus Christ evaluating all believers on the basis of their production during the church age. And there are going to be those who have rewards and those who lose rewards. And this is the backdrop for understanding all of the warning passages in Hebrews. He's warning these Jewish believers, don't go back into Judaism because when you do that, you will forfeit your spiritual growth. You can advance spiritually, but you can lose it. Paul said, I run the race, but I run so as not to become disqualified. In 1 Corinthians, he says he buffets his body. And he's using a, the, the metaphor from the games, how the, the athletes in the Olympics and the Greek games would discipline themselves so severely so that when the time came to run the race, they could win. And what Paul is saying in that passage is that it's possible that we can, before we die physically, we can tube it spiritually. We can just fall by the wayside. We can go negative to to doctrine. We can go negative to the Word. We can start following the lusts of our sin nature. And we can cancel all the spiritual growth that we've had up to that point if we stay in carnality long enough. And we can actually regress all the way back to spiritual infancy, lose rewards, lose capacity for life, and end up being miserable and going out on the sin unto death just like Saul did before uh, our our, our normal time would would have come. So Paul, I mean, so the author of Hebrews is warning all through here, don't fall away, don't fall away, persevere, stay with it, because there will be rewards. And with that, that's what he means here. No one will see the Lord. He's not talking about having an eternity in heaven where you see the Lord because you're saved. He's talking about a presence with the Lord and a higher level of intimacy because those who are the winner believers, those who have the rewards, are those who will come back with the Lord and rule and reign with Him in the kingdom. All other believers, church-age believers, will be there, but they will not be ruling and reigning with the Lord. Now, we're going to go into that study of inheritance and rewards in a lot more detail in our study of Galatians coming up and in some other passages in John as well. And we've covered it already, so you should be familiar with that. Verse 15, See to it then that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now, what does that mean? That means that there is a standard here of God's grace. And the writer is saying that that's how you were saved. It's just like Paul's argument in in Galatians. You were saved by grace, and we grow and mature by grace. But if we start operating on legalism and ritualism and human viewpoint, then we're going to fall short of God's grace. All human viewpoint systems of religion put the emphasis on human ability, human experience. And it falls short. It doesn't come up to the standard of God's grace. 
And then he says that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now, what exactly is a root of bitterness? Well, it's going to relate somehow to a rejection of the grace of God, because that's our context. The phrase is a genitive phrase, and it can mean a root that consists in bitterness. That would be a a subjective genitive. Or it can be a root that produces bitterness. Now this is important because in our psychologized culture, when you put on your psychological glasses, which you pick up from the world system that has given us that orientation, and you come to the Scriptures, you can say, oh, this is talking about some kind of bitterness inside our soul that then causes trouble. And so we have to... There have been, and there's an element of truth to that, but that's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about going in and weeding out some root of bitterness in your soul. We've got to sit down and go through a therapy session, or 20 or 30 at $100 an hour, so that we can figure out what these hidden roots are in your subconsciousness so that we can pull them out. Let's look at, let's let the Bible define the term. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 19.18. Deuteronomy 19.18. Fifth book from the front of the Bible, the last of the Pentateuch, written by Moses. Deuteronomy is is really Moses' last word and testament to the nation Israel before he went up on the mountain and went to be with the Lord before they entered into the land. So it contains various warnings, various mandates to Israel. Deuteronomy 19.18 Now I somehow wrote down the wrong passage. Maybe it's Deuteronomy 18.19. No, it's not Deuteronomy 18.19. That's the trouble with these computers. They type out the wrong verses. What happens with, with, with the computers, they spell check, but if it still means something, they don't tell you it's misspelled because it's a legitimate spelling. So the same thing with numbers. They don't tell you it's the wrong verse. Okay, let's see. Deuteronomy 29.18. Let's try that one. Deuteronomy 29.18. This is it. The passage in Deuteronomy 29 is giving the final warning to the Jews before at the end of this sermon. Warning them of the consequences of failure. What happens if they violate the, the Mosaic Law? And so the first 18 verses, or the first 17 verses, it rehearses this. When you get down to verse 14, let's pick up the context in verse 14. Moses is speaking. He says, now not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath. This is the Lord speaking. Now, not that, I, not that with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today, that is, the generations to come. For you, and for you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations. These are going to talk about all of the idolatry that is in the Canaanite populace, the Canaanite culture that they're going to have to destroy. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold which they had with them lest there shall be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Now, stop right there. What's the subject? What's he talking about? 
He's talking about the fact that they're getting ready to go into a culture that is dominated by the phallic cult. It's dominated by all the fertility gods, the fertility worship of the Canaanite religions. And he's saying, you've seen all those abominations. Now, there's going to be pressure upon you to compromise with the world system. And the world system for the Jews at that time was exemplified in Canaanite religion. said there's going to be pressure, continual pressure, day in and day out, from the culture around you to conform to that culture. And unless this happen, listen what he says, lest that should happen, and then he gives the last clause, unless there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Wormwood is bitterness. This is the Old Testament phrase, a root of bitterness. Who's he referring to? He's not talking about some psychological root here. He's talking about lest there be somebody in your midst who caves into idolatry and because of their compromise, they start infecting the rest of the community. He's talking about a person who caves in to worldly thinking and idolatry and the Canaanite religion. That's the root. The root is that which produces a fruit. So what we see here now is that when the writer of Hebrews picks up this phraseology of a root of bitterness, he's not talking about a root that is bitterness. He's talking about a root that produces bitterness. And what Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 29.18 is that when you let somebody, he's talking to the Jews, when you allow them to compromise with idolatry, this root is going to produce a fruit. It will infect those around them, and then the end result is going to be divine discipline on the nation, and life will be a bitter experience. You will go through adversity, you will go through suffering, discipline and if you don't respond correctly to that and this is where the writer of Hebrews is picking this up if you don't respond correctly to that test then you will develop bitterness in your soul that's why I said earlier remember there's two concepts here for bitterness the internal mental attitude sin of bitterness and the external self-induced misery of the bitterness of life because of what's going on inside the soul now back to Don't you turn back. You go to Genesis. Let me see. We're going to look at another passage here. In Genesis chapter 25, the Old Testament example of the impact of this kind of idolatrous thinking. The writer to Hebrews says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root producing bitterness causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. And the word there is a very picturesque word in the Greek. It is miaino, which was the word that was used to describe the excrement and waste that was tossed out into the sewer. And that if that landed upon you, because in those days, in a typical uh, village in Israel... What they did was they cut a trench, a ditch, down the middle of the road. And everybody would just throw all their sewage out there and then they would wash it on out into outside of the town. And so it's a very picturesque term of someone who gets splattered by the sewage and so they are defiled by it. And if you allow someone in your midst to develop idolatry, cosmic thinking, human viewpoint thinking. It has an impact and it destroys lives. It produces self-induced misery and drives people away from God. This is the illustration then in verse 16, that there be no immoral or godless person. See, that's what this idolatrous person is. They are godless. They have rejected God as the center point of their life. No immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Now that takes us back to Genesis chapter 25, where we read the brief story about Jacob and Esau. Now there are many things that I could say about this, but I'm just going to try to summarize the main points here. Jacob and Esau are the twin sons of Isaac. 
the promise was made to Abraham. God was following a principle based on human viewpoint and not I'm based on divine viewpoint and not human viewpoint. Divine viewpoint said the older will serve the younger. Human viewpoint says that the firstborn is the one who gets the inheritance. The firstborn was not the seed, was the product of Abraham's liaison with Hagar, the Egyptian slave, gave birth to Ishmael. But this child of promise was Isaac. Ishmael was not a believer. Isaac is a believer. So the line for Israel goes down through the believer, not through the unbeliever. Isaac then has twin sons. He and Rebekah have twins. When she gives birth, the first one out is Esau, and Isaac is the second one grabbing his heel, which all of this foreshadows. I mean, there's so much, so many different themes being woven in and out of this. If you read it in the Hebrew, you really pick up on a lot of different word plays that, that foreshadow themes. It's, it's like reading a magnificent writer like, like Charles Dickens or, or a Steinbeck or a Hemingway where they're able to weave a, have a multi-layer of plots. And that's what's going on in the Scripture. It's not just one single plot. There's all these different themes that are going in there, different shifts of meaning. And you have Esau, who's the red man. And later he will be called, he will live in Edom, which is the red country. And the red man who will live in the red country sells his inheritance for the red stuff. And then you have Isaac, I mean Jacob, who is the heel grabber. He is the one who is trying to, to grasp after Esau. And Jacob is the younger. And we have the statement by God, while they are still in the womb before birth, that he says, two nations, in verse 23, two nations are in your womb, and two people shall be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older, here's the principle, the older will serve the younger. So God announces before their birth that Jacob is the one through whom the line will go. That means that the inheritance, Jacob, is secure. You don't have to try to secure it through manipulative, deceptive means. But he did, because that the concept of Yaakov being the heel grabber, the deceiver, the cunning one, it displays his character. So from birth you see this, this idea that he has the heel grabber. This foreshadows what he's going, the tricks he's going to play on Esau to get the inheritance. And the inheritance is the transfer of the patriarchal priesthood and all of the spiritual responsibilities that go with it. It is not just that he's going to get the goodies when the old man dies. There's a tremendous amount packed into the inheritance. This means that he is going to be the spiritual seed. He is going to be the one who receives everything from the Father, but he is the one who will be the head of the family. And a lot went with that. So it is the... He is the... He will be the the priest, the family priest, and everything will go through him. But... As the boys grow up, and you see that there's just a real lack of spiritual influence in the family here, not as much as with Abraham, Isaac, you see it all through this from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way down to the sons of Jacob, that with each generation they become less uh, oriented to spiritual things. We're told in verse uh, 25, let's go back to 25, uh, excuse me, where are we, 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He's the outdoorsman, the wilderness guy, the mountain man. He's always going out hunting, living in the fields, camping out. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. He stayed at home. He was, in one sense, he was his mother's favorite. He was a mama's boy. And she kept him home and he took care of things there. But Esau was Isaac's favorite. Verse 28. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. So just like I love Mexican food, and whenever I go to Texas, I have to eat it at least once a day, Isaac 
wanted his venison every day. He wanted to taste that venison or, or whatever it was that, that Esau would get that day and bring it to the table and he would prepare it and he knew just how to cook it just right to make his father happy. And when Jacob, and so one day Esau comes in, but Jacob has been the one who has cooked a stew and Esau has had a bad day at the office. And he's worked 12 hours and he still can't get his computer to work. And so he comes home and he's tired and he's hungry and his blood sugar level's way down. And he's just about to go crazy and he's famished. Verse 30, And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of the red stuff. So the red man wants his red stuff. He says, Because I'm famished. This is the derivation of the term Edom. Later you will have his descendants called Edomites. But Jacob is cunning here. He knows he's got him over a barrel. First, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. I'm just dying of hunger here. Just feed me. What use is a birthright? What use is the inheritance? What use is my, my patriarchal priesthood privileges going to be to me if I'm dead? Who cares? Jacob said, first swear to me. In other words, Jacob's going to make sure, sign on the dotted line here, I want to have it notarized. I want you to make sure that when you get fed, you're not going to say, oh, well, you just held me under duress. He wants to make sure he's going to have the birthright. And so Esau sells him all of his patriarchal privileges, the blessing, everything, for a pot of lentil soup. Because that's literally what it is. It's just red lentil soup. And the point of this, the theological point that the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand is that the reason Esau was willing to sacrifice his, in, his inheritance is because he had no orientation at all to grace. He had no inclination towards God at all. He didn't care about spiritual things. So an inheritance was irrelevant to him because it had to do with spirituality. So he is a godless person because of that. He is like the idolater who has rejected God. He doesn't want to have anything to do with God. This is like the believer who advances so far in the spiritual life and then they're willing to say, well, I just don't have time for the Word of God. I need to build my business. I need to be at work. I need to develop my golf game. I need to be at home with the family, which means they're going to sit back and watch television. And they're going to sacrifice their inheritance in the kingdom for all eternity for whatever it is, whether it is a lust of the flesh or whether it's business or whatever it might be, because there are things in life that they idolatrize. They raise to a level of worship. And it can be good things. It can be family life. I've heard people say, well, I just don't have enough time for my family and I need to be at home with the kids so I just won't go to Bible class. And before long, they don't go to Bible class. But the most important thing you as parents can do with your kids is to show them that no matter what happens in life, if you don't get the Word of God in your soul, nothing else is going to matter. And see, as far as Esau is concerned, the only thing that mattered was right here, right now, whatever is going to make me happy today, and I don't care about the future. But we understand that we have a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We have a destiny, an inheritance and we need to make decisions today in light of eternity. That's the thrust of what the writer to Hebrews is saying. And he is saying that if you reject that, then the result is bitterness, self-induced misery that will destroy your life. And as your life goes, it builds that cycle from external bitterness to internal bitterness. Self-absorption, arrogance, and builds that whole, develops a very tight bitterness cycle. Now, back to James chapter 3. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, you're oriented to self like Esau was, James warns, break off the arrogance, stop being arrogant, and lying against the truth. And then he says... This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. What is the earthly, natural, and demonic wisdom of our day? 
Well, it goes under the name now of post-modernism. Well, we don't have time to even get close to talking about postmodernism because before you can understand postmodernism, you're going to have to understand modernism. And so I've got a little chart here, but we will come back and we will look at this and analyze it from the framework of what is the earthly, natural, and demonic wisdom that is pressuring us to handle testing in life today in a way that takes away from our spirituality, takes away from our relationship with God, and is destructive to the spiritual life that God has given us in this church age. So we'll come back and look at this next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we do thank You that we have such clarity in Your Word that it is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. In its light, everything is illuminated so that we can understand how we can live, how we can solve problems. And you have promised that when we are walking in the light, that not only do we have fellowship with you, but we will have incredible peace, stability, and happiness. And Father, we pray that you would help us to, to think about these things, to remember them as we meditate on them, that the Holy Spirit would drive them deep into our soul, that they would shape our thinking, that we might make decisions, Handle adversity in a way that glorifies you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.